0: We're going to talk this morning a little bit about the the past. The past is a wonderful gift that God gives us. He gives us memories. He gives us recollections. He gives lessons learned as we look at the past. History is God's way of reminding us, really, of, of reality as it's been manifested in bygone days and teaching us through that revealed truth. And throughout the Old Testament, it's really interesting and interesting to see that the Israelites are often encouraged, look back. Look back at your history. Look back at how God brought about these plagues to free you from Egypt. Look back at how God parted the Red Sea and brought you out of there. Look back at your history. Look back at the reality, at how the, you, you've been given victory over the opposing nations in the Promised Land. And as they were encouraged to look back, we also are encouraged to look back. And we gain benefits from the truth that we see as we look back. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Old Testament events were written for our our instruction. And we look to the past and we see the truth of reality as God reveals it. And we learn from that. And we can do the same thing even in the short span of our personal lives. I know I I gain significant benefit and lessons as I look back and how God has revealed himself in my own life. As short as it has been so far. There's significant benefit to be had in looking back at history. These, these objective occurrences as they have occurred and been shown to be reality. Help us in the midst of, of the more subjective feeling circumstances of our current day life. They, those objective past histories help to anchor us in the midst of those times. And so we're going to do a little looking back on history this morning, and I think we'll be edified in the midst of this process. So, brace yourselves. Open up to 2 Chronicles, okay? seems like every time I tell somebody, yeah, I'm going to be preaching from 2 Chronicles, there's either like a a laugh, you know, really? No, come on. Or or wait, seriously? Yeah, yeah, go to 2 Chronicles, okay? 2 Chronicles chapter 36, there is great, great benefit to be had from looking at this, this book and these verses in particular this morning. So 2 Chronicles as a book really is paired with 1 Chronicles, it's the book of Chronicles. Okay, uh, It's one of the later books that was written post-exile, Okay, it was written late in the history of Israel, probably around 500 B.C., and it was definitely written looking backwards at history okay, and chronicling the events with specific goals. Some of these goals for the book of Chronicles included tracing the Davidic house, okay, specifically looking at the tribe of Judah and the Davidic house as, as God worked in that history. Um, it's both a drama and a tragedy as kings follow the Lord or disobey the Lord and God deals with the nation. Um, respectively. And then a second theme would be focusing on the relationship between Judah's worship of God and their attendant circumstances. As they sought to obey the prescriptions of the Lord, then God dealt with them accordingly. As they disobeyed the Lord and followed kings in that regard, then God dealt with them accordingly, either blessing or cursing. And at center stage of that theme is the temple in Jerusalem and the Levitical tribe and their ministry. So ultimately Chronicles ends up telling how about 140 years, 140 years after the tribes of Israel are carried off into exile, the tribe of Judah's exile is completed with the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. So we're in 2nd Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to read right now as a preface verses 15 to 21. It says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, And burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So if the chronicler had stopped there, What we would have there is an only slightly hopeful end to really a a heartbreaking and troubling story of Judah, their kings, their people, their faithlessness, their ultimate destruction. But the chronicler finishes with the two verses we're going to study today. And in so doing, he exalts God in magnificent ways with the original purpose of reminding Israel of God's power and his faithfulness. And his rule as they're evidenced through His working in their history. And I think seeing God revealed in this way, as the one with the ultimate authority and power, as revealed in four areas as we'll see, will likewise encourage us. So let's read our passage now, Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. So it says, "Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, May the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help here. We ask for the work of your Spirit to enlighten us. Lord, I ask for the help of your Spirit to be clear in communication, to be clear in thought and expression. Lord, and that uh, what, what is heard and understood would be the truth Of your word, so that you are magnified, you are glorified, we are edified and built up and convicted and encouraged. And Lord, that we walk out this morning extolling and praising you. Please accomplish that this morning for your name's sake and through the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the beginning of this passage, we see a a time preface to the main point of the passage. In the first year of King Cyrus, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord as spoken by Jeremiah, God takes action. And that action specifically, he takes action specifically because of a timeline that he has established years ago when this certain man named Cyrus wasn't wasn't even born, wasn't around. So it's important, as we even read, in the first year of King Cyrus... In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, there's an idea there, there's a concept that God is in control. That God is orchestrating something. He says, now is the time. In this year of King Cyrus, now is the time. Flip over to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, eight verses 8 to 14 as we see God revealed through what has happened in the past. Jeremiah 25 verses 8 to 14 says this. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. Now it's important to remember Jeremiah was pre-exile, right? So this is this is decades prior to the writing of the Chronicles. Okay? Decades prior to Cyrus. In verse 8, the Lord of hosts says, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing, And an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity. And the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land. Babylon. All my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book. Which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them. Even them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds. And according to the work of their hand. So what we're seeing here. Is that God. God. God is the ruler over the course of time. God dictates the course of time. That is in His control, that is under His dominion, that is under His domain. God is the ruler over the course of time. As you look back in 2 Chronicles, verses 8-11 to of what we just read have happened here in 2 Chronicles. Towards the end of Kings and Chronicles, it tells us how Nebuchadnezzar had done the very thing that God prophesied that he would ask and bring Nebuchadnezzar to come and do. He's destroyed Jerusalem, he's destroyed the temple, and he's deported the populace of Judah. And so as far as the Israelites themselves are concerned, their way of life, their culture, their their presence as a people, as a nation on this earth, it's done. Babylon has destroyed it. They've, they've destroyed their, their culture, their kingdom, their, their, their population. It's scattered. Nebuchadnezzar has fulfilled. God has fulfilled through Nebuchadnezzar what Jeremiah spoke. And then verse 12 of what we read in Jeremiah is also fulfilled here in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles. Cyrus... Has punished Babylon. Remember what Jeremiah said? I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and he's going to do this and he's going to do this. And then Israel is going to be slaves of Babylon for 70 years. And then at the end of that time, I'm going to punish Babylon. Where did Cyrus, king of Persia, come in? He did exactly that. He came and he conquered Babylon. And he punished Babylon. Babylon. And so God is revealing himself as the ruler over the course of time. Seventy years after Judah was conquered, the Babylonian Empire falls and is replaced by the Persian ruler, Cyrus the Great. A little bit more context. Jeremiah 29. Keep your finger in Second Chronicles. Jeremiah 29, verses 10... And, 11. and this would be helpful even to put verse 11 in the context a little bit. Jeremiah 29 verse 10 says this. For thus says the Lord. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon. I will visit you. And fulfill my good word to you. To bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. And not for calamity. To give you a future. And a hope. So Again. God has promised through Jeremiah that 70 years after Babylon begins to rule, God promises, 70 years after that, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to visit Judah. I'm going to fulfill my word to them, and I'm going to bring them back to the land. Why? Because I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. That's what the Lord spoke to Israel before Cyrus was even born. Before the exile had happened, God said, I rule time. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and now we're seeing it happen. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So exactly what God had spoken is happening. Seventy years have passed from stage one of the exile and captivity, and this timeline is absolutely Under the control of God. He has punished the Babylonians as he promised. And we will find that he's going to fulfill his promise to restore Judah to their land also. All within the prescribed timeline. So talk about feeling. Put yourselves into the Israelite shoes for a moment. Talk about feeling like life circumstances are out of your control. Okay? I mean, we we tend to feel like sometimes our life is out of control. And yet, if you, if you look at their scenario, their nation was conquered. Their cities burned. Their, their visual representative of, of God's presence in their nation destroyed. The temple. Your culture is decimated. So what hope did Judah, did the Israelites have of bringing about their own restoration? None. What hope did they have of even bringing that about within this specific 70-year timeline? Absolutely none. But God is the ruler over the course of time, not Israel, not Judah. God rules. And he demonstrates that here. Did he say 70 years? Yep. And he meant 70 years. And he did it in 70 years. He makes it happen in the first year of the reign of King Cyrus in order to fulfill the word as spoken by his prophet Jeremiah. So, I mean, we we read passages like this, and sometimes we just go right over. But think about all that went into that phrase. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus. Oh, yeah, because he said he was going to punish Babylon. And so he did. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. God is controlling the timeline. How often have we tried and do we try to be masters of our own timelines? To dictate what will happen and what we think should happen and, and, and say that, well, I'm going to accomplish this. For example, I will be married by such and such a time. I will have this particular career established by this point. I will have X number of children by so many years into our marriage, and I will be able to retire by the age of so-and-so and will plan on dying just before my very preferred birthday. That's practically what a lot of us do. But then our house of cards comes crashing down around us when we don't find the one by the time that we had slated. When our career takes that downward turn that we weren't expecting, we didn't foresee, and we didn't think we deserved it. When we find we're unable to have children. When the stock market crash decimates our retirement funds. When we find that we're going to die prematurely. See, God is the ruler of Over the course of time. Amen. (laughs) And so we have to trust that into His hand. As God's plan is for events to unfold, they unfold. And they're not going to unfold in any other sort of way. If He has said that something will be, it will be. According to His timing and His plan. Because no man dictates God's timeline. God dictates man's timeline. And so with that introductory comment demonstrating the Lord's rule over the course of time, the chronicler then moves on to show that Lord as ruler over the hearts of men. We see the next phrase there. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. So God sovereignly moves in the heart, in the innermost being of Cyrus, who is a pagan ruler of a pagan empire. And by so doing, God drives this this pagan king to action. We need to get to know Cyrus a little bit before we continue. He was literally the ruler of the largest empire in the world at that point in time. He had ascended to that position by taking the throne of his father and then going and taking the throne of his grandfather and then going and conquering Lydia, the capital of Sardis, which opened up a whole kingdom to him there. And then by going on and attacking Babylon, as we know, and taking over that kingdom. So by that time, he'd carved out an empire that stretched from modern day India to Greece and then down south to Egypt And so basically he was a military leader who overthrew three kingdoms, was the acknowledged ruler of the world. He was no pushover. He had control of his life. He had strategy. He had purpose. He had determination. He had direction. He had vision. He had his kingdom. And he had certainly the mental faculties to bring all that about. But God stirred up this man's spirit... His, his emotional and mental core. Okay, this is not even some sort of vague term of, of, of something. Off. This is, this is his, very, his very thoughts, his very will, his very uh, intention. And literally, God awakened it. Roused it up, said, wake up, Cyrus, I have something I need you to do. Here's what it is. Now, one of Cyrus's acknowledged political strategies was to return captives of other nations to their homeland, homeland, thinking that content vassals are easier vassals to control. Makes sense in some ways. Yet it was God who awakened that strategy and motivated Cyrus to act. The Hebrew here is very clear. There were very clear ways to say that Cyrus decided to do such and such. But it's also very clear that God acted upon Cyrus, resulting in action on his part. Now, this is a little hard to, to reconcile in some ways because we want to think that, that um, our hearts are ours. Okay. It's somewhat akin to the idea of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. I mean, how, how does that reconcile? We know that we make choices. We know that we're responsible for those choices and the consequences of them, and yet even the hearts of men are subject to the sovereign rule of God. So I have to confess, how to reconcile that, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe Pharaoh's heart was inclined toward hardness, and Cyrus's heart inclined this way, this, towards this action. But the biblical statement of fact is that with our ability to make decisions and accept the consequences of those decisions and actions... God is sovereign over the hearts of men. God is the ruler over the hearts of men. And even the mightiest man, even the most independent man of that day, is subject to God moving him and his heart according to his purpose. Some might argue that this this can't be. Man is not a pawn. Man makes his own choices, and yet what does the text say? And since we're Mission Road Bible Church... We look at what the Bible says and we force ourselves, as uncomfortable as it can be, to submit to that. Because God spoke. And to further nail it down, the Bible actually does present Cyrus as a sort of a pawn. In a good way. But if you look at Isaiah 44, 28. Turn over there. Isaiah 44, 28 in the midst of the Lord and his proclamation to Israel by his sovereign rule over all things God says this Isaiah 44 verse 28 it is I who says of Cyrus wait, 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 wait Cyrus isn't even around yet that's the point It is I, the Lord, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he, Cyrus, declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Does that sound at all like a a piece of of God's sovereign plan that he is planning to, to put into play at some point in the future? that man has no control over, and yet God has absolute rule over? That sounds like that to me. Sorry, that was totally stream of consciousness. That may not have made much sense to you. God is working even then to put Cyrus into play when Cyrus is not a part of the picture. The situation that God is going to utilize Cyrus in has not occurred, and yet God, being the ruler over time and the ruler over the hearts of men... Carries this out. In fact, he planned it out to a T. Seventy years. Check. Cyrus, his shepherd, in place. Check. God punishes Babylon. He stirs up the heart of the emperor of the known world to do the Lord's desire. And he demonstrates his absolute rule in the midst of both of these things. I ask you, what heart, soul, or spirit is beyond the stirring of the Lord? None. Good answer. What about your disagreeable boss? Good answer. What about your cantankerous neighbor? Some of you may be. What about your wayward child? Or your unkind spouse? God is the ruler over the hearts of men. But how many of you can join me? in saying that the first response to many of the difficulties that we encounter in relationships is completely self-oriented. We ask, okay, how can I persuade this neighbor to stop abusing my family or my property? We say, how can I manipulate the situation I'm in so that my boss looks more favorably on me? How can I change the outcome of what I see happening in my kid's life if only I had done this? Ooh, maybe if I do this. But this response depends on powerless, incapable people to affect the hearts of men. We don't rule the hearts of people, God does. And so, what we see here in this passage is an absolutely clear demonstration of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. I want, I want the king's heart to go this way. He turns it. I want the king's heart to go this way. He turns it. Just like a channel of water. Just like you direct that. And so here in Second Chronicles, we are reminded that God is ruler over the emotional and volitional centers of men. And as a result, I think we're, we're to be stimulated to turn to God whenever the hearts of men come into our lives and our interactions. Whenever the heart of man is involved in where we're at, we need to turn to the Lord. We have to cease that independent first response and instead make our course of action a plea to the one who rules the hearts of men. God, please work in this situation. Work in this person's heart. Change them as only you can. Change me as only you can. You are the rule of hearts, so please move me, move them in this regard. But see, so often our first response is maybe if I say, do, present. But God is the ruler. And so we see, according to God's timeline, he then sovereignly stirs up the heart of Cyrus to take action to accomplish God's desire. And so now, in Cyrus' actual action, we see more characteristics of God's rule revealed. We see that God is not only the ruler of the course of time, he's not only the ruler over the hearts of men, but he's the ruler over the powers of the earth. Look at verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, now, where's he sending this? He's sending a proclamation throughout his kingdom. So you've got, you've got, you've got these, essentially these proclaimers walking around throughout his kingdom proclaiming this message. And he puts in writing saying, thus says king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus acknowledges that this, this Yahweh, this Lord, has tasked him with a job to do. Yahweh has literally placed a duty upon him, a burden. It has that idea of, of, of being a, having a burden placed upon you that you have to execute to get that burden off. The God who had the authority to make him king over such a vast empire is the same God who has given him this responsibility to perform. He must build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Sounds a little reminiscent of what uh, Jeremiah said. I'm not sure that this suddenly means that Cyrus had gotten converted. I, I don't think he was a believer in Yahweh. I'm not sure that it entirely means that he didn't. But we know Cyrus had interaction with Daniel, who was one of uh, his counselors after Belshazzar's infamous downfall. And I have no doubt that Daniel was faithful to proclaim the greatness of Yahweh to the kings that he served. But this situation is also potentially just another political strategy on the part of Cyrus in some ways. He may not have even been aware of the depth of truth that he was communicating. There's an archaeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder. And honor. It, it, demonstrates that Cyrus's strategy was to um, give honor to the God of the people that he conquered. So when he walked into Babylon as the conquering king, he said, Marduk, the God of Babylon, has seen fit to give me this day, you know, the, the kingdom. And, and Marduk has, has made this come about for me. And so here we see him giving credit to Yahweh as far as, having been given all the uh, the kingdoms of the earth. So Cyrus could be simply, in his own mind, name-dropping Yahweh for the sake of currying favor with the Israelites as they return, again, thinking, hey, happy vassals are good vassals. But regardless, again, of Cyrus's motivation or true state of heart, he communicates truth. He communicates truth that has been stated before, truth that has been borne out by history even recent history, kings have come, kings have gone, all under the control and the will of Yahweh, who is the king of all kings. I want you look over to Daniel 5. A good chunk of the Old Testament over. Daniel 5, verses 17 to 27. We're going to see here a bold proclamation. A double glimpse of God's rule over the powers of the earth. And we find ourselves at Belshazzar's feast. And King Belshazzar is somewhat concerned because this hand has appeared and started writing on the wall. And Daniel now shares its meaning and how God interacts with the kings of the world. Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sits over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, a parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So we see here a bold proclamation of the sovereign rule of God over the powers of the earth. He demonstrated that clearly through Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 30 demonstrates that clearly through Belshazzar also. Because Belshazzar, that very night, is killed and his kingdom is taken. God is the giver and taker of power and authority. Because all power and authority resides in him. This is an Old Testament truth and it's a New Testament truth also. Jesus responds to Pilate's claim of authority with this statement. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Romans 13 tells us there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. It's clear throughout Scripture that the powers of the earth are under the rule of the power of God. Done. Issue settled. Are you, so, are you concerned about, about world matters today? Do you feel like things are spiraling out of control? They're in control. They're in God's control. God raises authority and powers up. He takes them down the moment he's done with them. No ruler hangs on for a moment longer than God ordains that he have in that position. And so uh, be encouraged. These pagan kings that God deals with, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, they're the equivalent if they don't surpass the power held by any ruler today other than nuclear capacity. But Obama, President of the United States. Putin, President of Russia. Xi Jinping, President of China. These leaders of world powers have been placed in their positions by whom? God. They will be removed from their positions the moment God sees fit in accordance with his plan for the world. If Nebuchadnezzar can be taken from world power to grazing like a cow, back to world power, he got his kingdom back, then then these leaders are just as subject to God's will and to his rule. And that's the theological truth of the bible the question as we consider today are whether our lives and reflections reflect that truth whether our lives and our responses reflect that truth does your does your reaction to world events reflect trust in the ultimate ruler over those events and those powers or does it reflect a dismay that reveals your trust is actually in the person occupying the position or even maybe the position itself rather than in the God who both established those positions and placed those men in those positions. I might be poking some people this, but this says it. So the question is, will we conform our minds and our reactions and our thoughts and our hearts to what God says and God claims, or will we just respond according to our own? thinking test yourselves see how your life bears out the truth of the biblical theology here we find that god is also ruler over the destiny of his people cyrus's missive goes out throughout his kingdom all citizens hear it and this is what it says whoever there is among you of all his people May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. That is, any of Yahweh's people, regardless of what position they're in, what kind of financial status they're in, where they're located, any of Yahweh's people are invited to return to Jerusalem in order to build the house that the Lord has burdened Cyrus to build. Cyrus even invokes Yahweh's blessing and his presence to be with them in this endeavor. There's no no prerequisites there's no, you know, okay, all, all you Jews, go ahead and pay this, this tax to then be allowed to go back home. There's nothing like that. The only prerequisite is that you have to be one of Yahweh's people. There's no restrictions. In fact, we even find the opposite to be the case in the beginning of Ezra, where a, a similar accounting is given. In the beginning of Ezra... King Cyrus actually says, hey, and those of you that are around them, give them contributions to support their trip and to support the building of the temple that God has asked me to build for him there. So not only are there no prerequisites and there's no restrictions, there's actually strong, strong encouragement to accomplish this task. And I ask you, what man, what Jew, again, could have brought this about? None. Obviously. Not a trick question. After 70 years of Babylonian captivity, what Jew took it into his own hands to say, ding, 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 time's up. Let's go. Cyrus, you gotta let us go. Nobody did. Their destiny wasn't in their own hands. God, the ruler over the course of time, The ruler over the hearts of men and the ruler over the powers of the earth is the ruler over the destinies of his people. He rules. All people, really, but even specifically in this case, the destiny of his people. If God said something was going to happen to his people, for better or for worse, depending on their conduct, it was going to happen. No one could prevent it. No one could thwart it. And through the mouth of Jeremiah, God had said, my people are going to spend 70 years in Babylonian captivity, after which I'm going to punish Babylon, and I'm going to bring my people home. And what God said, God accomplished. He was the master of his people's fate. I am not the master of my fate. I am not the captain of my ship. God is the master of His people's fate. He is the master of my fate. He is the master of your fate. If He says that He'll provide for our basic needs, you know what He's going to do? He's going to provide for our basic needs. Regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. If He says that He will work all things out for our good, He's going to do that. Regardless of our circumstances. If he says that he will keep us safely in his hand and he will bring us home to be with him in glory, he will accomplish that no matter our circumstances. Because God rules our destinies. He is the master of our fate. And this is not this is not kind of a fatalistic absolution of responsibility. Huh? Oh, God's master of my fate, so I'm just going to I'm just going to sit here on my lawn chair and wait for him to make things happen. It's an acknowledgment of biblical fact, though, that we live our lives under the direction and the rule of God. But here's the, here's the, the, the crown jewel of how this all comes together. This is kind of the final capstone to the book of Chronicles. It's the, it's the very last thing that happens in Chronicles. But you know what's interesting? It's also the final capstone in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. In the original Hebrew, as they put the Old Testament together, they put Chronicles last. So the last words of the Hebrew Bible is what we've just read. It's the final capstone because this, these two verses right here, is a massive statement. Massive statement regarding God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his people and to himself. As the ruler over the course of time, God rules in his faithfulness. As the ruler over the hearts of men, God rules in his faithfulness. As the ruler over the powers of the earth, God rules in his faithfulness. As the ruler over the destiny of his people, God rules in his faithfulness. It would have been very easy for the Jews to think that their vanquishing and captivity meant that God had abandoned them and that they were at an end. Their fate was sealed. It would have been very easy for them to think that God's promise to David was nullified. It would have been very easy for them to think that their hope for a Messiah was in vain. But God rules in his faithfulness. And so this, the very end of the Hebrew Bible, is the capstone saying that despite all of this, God rules And his rule is characterized by his faithfulness. God had not abandoned them. His promise was not nullified. The hope of a Messiah was not in vain. Why? Because God is faithful. And he is the ultimate ruler who has the power to be absolutely faithful. I was thinking, trying to to think of a concrete example of how this has played out. And even practically how, how it can play out in our lives. And there's an interesting contrast between Abraham and David. This is not characteristic necessarily of, of them as men per se, but just situations that happen in their life. Abraham walks out by faith, right? But then think of the promise that God made to Abraham to give him an heir. To give him a son through whom he'll give him a, his people will be, be like a multitude of the stars and all nations will be blessed through him. Right? That's a big promise. What did Abraham do with that? Did he trust the course of time to God? Or as Abraham got older and Sarah got older and nothing had happened, Abraham decided, you know, I think, I think God might, I don't know, maybe he forgot. Maybe he's not quite in control. Maybe I should just take things into my own hands and take my destiny into my hands and take the course of time into my own hands and go ahead and have a child with, with my, uh, my servant. And the result was Ishmael. And do you, do you know what the result of Ishmael was? Like the vast multitude of Israel's enemies. And contrast that. Okay, I know Abraham's the father of faith and great example. That's just a scenario. Okay, but contrast that with David. David was anointed king as a young man. He was anointed king and then he went and served King Saul as a musician and as an armor bearer. And then he became good friends with Jonathan, and then he started to have all these heroic uh, victories, and the people's approval ratings of him went way up. And and yet, David said, this timeline is in God's control. My destiny is in God's control. He had opportunities to kill Saul. He had opportunities to take over the kingdom. He had opportunities to take his own fate, as it were, into his hands and to make things happen according to a much earlier timeline. It was, about, it was, it was probably about 15 years between David's anointing and his actual coronation as king. And so 15 years and with many opportunities to, to just do his own thing he said, No, no, no. Saul? He's God's anointed. When God wants to when God wants to make this transfer happen, God will make it happen. That's not for me to do. And and look look at look at just the, the, the evidence of, of where that ability to trust God's rule got them. It's very concrete. Example of in the midst of those scenarios, in the midst of looking at life and saying, how does my theology inform me in this decision and in this direction and what I desire? Abraham failed in that regard in that time and David succeeded in that time and, and um, we can see that. But you know what's, what's interesting even as I thought that illustration through further was look at all the revelation that David had. In terms of knowing God, David had the, old, had the Torah, he, he had the, the, the spirit of the Lord with him. And that, that knowledge of God, I'm convinced, was one of the things that helped him to respond in that way. And so look at all the revelation of God that we have. And so how much more should we know and trust and act accordingly with what God has said, who he is, and what he's going to do? So we take a similar lesson away this morning of what the chronicler wanted the Hebrews to understand. We we become one of God's people through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we're adopted into his family, our sins are forgiven, our lives are submitted to his lordship, and then we know we're a part of his people. And so no matter our circumstances, God's ultimate rule reigns. And part of his, as part of his people, his faithfulness has significant and special impact on us. And so when we think that we've been abandoned or that hope is lost or we must take things into our own hands, remember, God is the ultimate ruler of all these things. And he is faithful in the midst of that rule. Let's pray and then we'll close with a song together. Father in heaven, we exalt you. We magnify you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the only one who has the capacity to give and to take power and authority. We know that you are in control. Lord, thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for adopting us into your family if we trust in Christ. Lord, for those that are not a part of your family, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would trust Christ for the, the forgiveness of their sins and their inclusion into your people. And Lord, that as we live our lives, that as believers, we would live them in submission and happy trust to your rule over all these things. Bless us with this in Jesus' name. Amen.